You ever have a hard time trusting Jesus? Me too. I don't mean believing that He exists. I mean taking Him at His word and doing exactly what He says. That's trusting Jesus, just obeying Jesus. He's pretty plain spoken. I don't know if you've, you've read this in the Gospels. He's pretty direct, painfully so. So much so they killed Him for it. But if I'm very honest about my own relationship with Jesus, which is, I've had now for over 40 years, as much as I know He loves me, as much as He's shown up in my life, there are many times where He speaks and I still have a hard time trusting Him. How about you? You ever feel like you pray and there's brass in the ceiling over you and nothing is getting through? You ever get up from prayer and you've been talking to Jesus and you've been praying in His name? That means as best you understand as He would pray, certainly by His authority, not only with His permission but with His request, His instruction that you do so and you finish praying and you think to yourself, I wonder if I've just been talking into air. I wonder if anybody's listening. And if they're listening, I wonder if He cares. If you've never been there, that probably means you haven't been following Jesus very long. Best I can tell, all across the New Testament, even the extraordinary, spectacular Apostle Paul all went through moments of suffering and not understanding and wondering what Jesus was doing. There's nobody better in Paul that exemplifies a life completely turned around and completely given to Jesus. But even Paul wrote the Philippians and said, I have learned to be content. Now, if he learned to be content, that means that at least one time in his life, something happened to create a great physical need in Paul's life. And Paul thought to himself, I'm not satisfied. This isn't right. Things should be better. Peter Peter seesaws back and forth from confessing exactly who Jesus is and Jesus himself telling him that the Father himself has opened that understanding up to Peter to, at the end, denying him just before Jesus died. It's hard to trust Jesus. Today we're going to look in the Gospel of Mark and we're going to see firsthand that Jesus put his disciples in a situation that they found absolutely terrifying. I think you're going to be surprised by what he told them. But first, you have to understand that when I talk about trusting Jesus, the biblical word for that and the word you keep hearing around our church that is at the heartbeat of this church, trusting Jesus, in other words, learning who Jesus is, understanding what he said, and then actually doing it, that's discipleship. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's what it means to be his apprentice, his learner, all of those words synonymous with discipleship. We don't want to be mere churchgoers. We don't want to wear the label of Christian. We want to grow in understanding and love for Jesus, and we want our thoughts, our feelings, and our behaviors to look more and more like his. That's what it means to have a master and to be an apprentice, to be a disciple. But the Gospel of Mark, perhaps better than any other Gospel because it's so action-packed, invites us into the incredible storm of tension that is the life of Jesus that His disciples share in. Go with me to Mark chapter 1 and you'll see what I mean. 
Bible scholars, for good reason, including the eyewitness details of some of the stories, including the one we'll look at today, which I had never really studied deeply, believe that Mark's gospel is really sort of Peter's gospel. Mark wrote it, but Peter told him all of these firsthand accounts of what it was like to be up close with Jesus when the wind was blowing and they were getting wet in a storm, for instance. In Mark's gospel, we meet Jesus as a grown man already preaching. Mark chapter 1, Jesus is baptized. And it says in Mark 1 verse 11, immediately after Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descended on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. There it is. There's all of God present, visible, speaking, and God the Son coming out of the water. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus immediately begins obeying the Father from this point forward. He has always obeyed the Father. Here is a public certification, an announcement. This is, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Then the Spirit drives Jesus into the desert. He fasts for 40 days. He is tempted. He succeeds. He is victorious. Then Jesus begins preaching. Verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, that means, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. You want a summary of Jesus preaching? There it is. Believe God's good news, the kingdom of God is at hand because the king is now on earth and here's what you need to do, you need to turn away, that's what it means to repent, turn around, turn away from your sin and believe that good news. Jesus calls his disciples, his first disciples are commercial fishermen and try to hang on to that. Then he, we're told in verse 21, he goes into a synagogue in Capernaum and he is preaching and a demon-possessed man interrupts him. And start shouting in a way that everybody understands this isn't the man talking. This is an evil, filthy spirit speaking from within him. Now, I've been interrupted while preaching by more things than I can tell you. I was a missionary and was sometimes in some pretty novel situations. I've been interrupted by dogs fighting and by women in a group of eight breastfeeding on the front row. Um, crowd this size doesn't particularly matter. Take care of your children, but when I'm two feet away and 20 years old, it leaves an impression, and it's hard to continue uh, if you've never been a part of that particular cultural context, okay? Jesus is interrupted by a demon-possessed man. He tells him to be quiet. The demon responds by throwing the man to the ground and leaving, making a show of violence. From there, Jesus goes home with Peter. And amazingly, Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. He heals her. They eat. And at sundown, everybody comes out. Every sick and demon-possessed person in the surrounding countryside surrounds that modest home. And Jesus does a terrifying thing. He walks out into the darkness. And the sick are screaming out to him. And the demons are speaking to him. And he walks among them all with the calm of a man completely in charge of everything. And everyone he speaks to and everyone he touches is healed and, and freed. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary Savior. He heals many. He preaches in the Galilee. A leper 
comes begging Jesus for salvation. Jesus cleanses him. In chapter 2, Jesus then heals a man who has been paralyzed. He forgives his sins first. That creates a religious commotion because they say only God can forgive sin. And Jesus says, well, to prove that I can, he says to the paralyzed man, get up and walk. And the man walked out. And here's physical proof of spiritual authority. Then Jesus calls a tax collector. So now you've got a traitorous tax collector. If you're not familiar with the culture, a Jewish tax collector under the Roman Empire is basically a guy who has sold out his countrymen, is overcharging taxes, keeping what he charges in excess for these Roman occupiers. He's grown probably fabulously wealthy on the backs of his countrymen, and he is hated. But one day Jesus walks up to him and says, you come with me. And Matthew does, just like that leaves the table. He's responding to the authority. The crowd is saying, nobody has ever taught like this. This man has authority like no one else. He doesn't teach like our religious leaders. Jesus goes on to explain that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, that the Sabbath, the day of rest, was made for man, and Jesus himself has the authority to explain what it means, and he rules over it. In chapter 3, as he enters the synagogue, there is a man with a withered hand, a terrible deformity in the first century, something that would have not only limited his capacity, but probably because of people's religious thinking brought shame to his family, excluded him from a great number of things, Jesus says to him, stretch out your hand. And as the man does, a hand that has never been whole becomes whole and strong right in front of him. And the religious establishment is terribly angry if you're still following with me. This, because of all this, a great crowd starts following Jesus. And verse 11 says, Mark 3, 11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Can you imagine this? Everywhere he goes, he leaves a wake of healing, love, and spiritual power like Israel has never seen in its national life. In Mark 3, verse 14, Jesus spends a night in prayer and calls among the disciples who were following them, 12 that he had specially chosen. And he is going to begin teaching them more deeply who he is. In the middle of all this, look at Mark 3, verse 21. As the crowd is hounding Jesus and he is... He is continually uh, being pursued by crowds, so much so that verse 20 says they didn't even have time to eat. It says when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. Wow. I mean, there's pressure on every front. Do you understand how big and hurtful verse 20 is? There was a family conference, and they said our, our older brother's out of control. He's had some kind of psychotic breakdown. He doesn't know who he is. He cannot fend for himself. This cannot continue. Let's go get him. They're going to take custody of him. They're going to physically come in a show of force and take him away to see if they can get him to calm down. As Jesus' family is coming toward him, an official group of scribes, religious leaders from Jerusalem come down, and having heard all this, they're here to make an official investigation, and here is their pronouncement. They said, we've heard the stories. Here's what we know. He's demon-possessed. 
It's not the work of God, it's the work of the devil. He's sent here to deceive us. He is against Moses. He has no fear of God. And Jesus says, you are now committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Another time we'll delve into what that means, but suffice it to say, the Father and Jesus have already spoken of who Jesus is. The Spirit is working in all this, proving it and showing it. If they reject these works and this preaching, there is no witness left for them, and they will not be forgiven because they've rejected all that there is speaking on Jesus' behalf. In the middle of all that, after that official horrible pronouncement that the Savior is actually satanic, his mother and brothers come and they ask to see him. And they're there, we're told in Mark chapter 3, to take him away. Verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Watch this. He answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those seated around, at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That may not really hit you because you're not Jewish in the first century. Jesus is saying pedigree, last name, means absolutely nothing. You've put confidence that you're in the right family, you're a descendant of Abraham, and God loves you, and you're already okay, means absolutely nothing. Anybody who does the will of God, that's my true family. Any one of you can be as close to me as my mother or my brother or my sister. Relationship with God is established by doing the will of God as I'm explaining it to you. Only by that. Blood, religion, best effort, nothing will save you. Status cannot save you. You must trust me. And then he begins teaching them in parables. And it's one of the most explosive things in the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus explains the parables. The parables have a twofold meaning. To those who are leaning toward Jesus and starting to believe him more and more, the truth of Jesus and the kingdom of God is open to those who have already rejected him and will not listen, will listen with a hard heart. The parable will remain closed. Jesus told his most famous parable of a sower that goes out throwing seed everywhere on all kinds of soil. And the disciples don't understand what he means, so he says, I'm sowing the good seed of the word. There's nothing wrong with what I'm saying. I'm, pre I'm preaching the very word, the very will of God. The difference is in the soil. All kinds of things fight against the seed, not because the seed is bad, but because the soil is bad and the soil is hard and the word is choked out, for instance, by the love of money. In the parable, only one of those soils ever produces fruit that remains and multiplies. And it's both an invitation and a warning that your heart must be tender. If your heart is closed and hard to the things of God, there comes a time where the word, no matter how good, does not reach your heart and does you no good. Okay, that's the gospel of Mark. That's everything that Jesus has shown his disciples. And the crowds continually are thronging around him. In Mark chapter 4, he is continually teaching them. And it says in Mark 4.35, On that day when evening had come, on that long day, 
with all of that drama, with all of that pressure, with all of that teaching, with some believing and others rejecting on that long, exhausting day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. The crowds often thronged Jesus so much that he got into a boat and pushed off a little bit in the water. Now he says, it's time to go. Let's go to the other side. I love verse 36. It says, leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. My single best tip for you to enjoy the Bible is to slow down and ponder the phrases. I've asked myself for days, why does it say just as he was? They took him in the boat with them just as he was. And here's the only image I can come up with from the context These are his loving disciples. These are his apprentices. He's the man. He's the master. He's the savior. He's the one that speaks for God and acts like God. And they are doing their very best as an entourage to shield him and protect him. He says the word and they're off. They're taking care of him, trying hard to leave the boat behind. The disciples are not there for themselves. They're there for him, and they bear him along and try to get him out of there. But look at the end of the verse. It says other boats were with him. Now, what's happening there? You've seen the crowds. You've seen the crush. You've seen the pressure. You've seen all the crying out for attention and for help. Why are other boats going with them? We're going to have a very long Sunday if you don't cooperate. Come on now. (laughs) Why are other boats with him? Is this a regatta? They're chasing him. He can't get away. He has given literally all of God to him, to this crowd, all day long. Finally, he says, let's leave. We'll get to the other side. And even now, he is being pursued in a boat. And here comes some bad news. A great windstorm arose and waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Easy to read, tough place to be. You see, the Sea of Galilee was 700 feet below sea level and then and now, because of the geography, storms could blow in just like that. And what was really a giant lake could have storms so sudden and so severe that there was no predicting them, no preparing for them, and no way to survive them unless you were in very good hands and very fortunate. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this boat. In fact, I need a little bit of help. See these cones? In Israel, there's something they call the Jesus boat. They found a first century boat in Galilee, and they reconstructed it. And they're not entirely sure that Jesus was ever in it, but it is undeniably the very kind of boat that the disciples would have used. It's as long as these cones are apart, and it's only as deep as this cone goes back from the platform. About 27 feet long and about 8 feet deep. Here's the tough part. It was only about 4 feet tall. It was built for fishing. It was built for a crew of five, one helmsman and four rowers. How many people are in this boat? Thirteen. Jesus and his 12 disciples, and they think, especially based on the physiology of a first century man who was probably about 5'5 and 140 based on skeletal remains, that it could have accommodated up to 15 people. 
So it was okay for carrying people, but it was a disaster, really, in any kind of storm, especially if it didn't have five experienced sailors in it. In fact, I need a little help. Could I get 12 of you to join me on stage? I'm not Jesus, but I do need 12 people to come up here with me. Come on up. You don't have to be 5'5", five five, don't worry. Any, any height will do. Let's get 13 of us up here. All right. 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. We're too short. Come on up. There's an athlete. All right. Thank you, Katie. All right. Now, get inside the cones because that's the dimensions. Is this comfy? Yeah, we're cozy. Now, we're all headed in the same direction, so kind of we'll be in a boat, and there's the, it's rounded, remember, so we kind of probably are all kind of stuck in one line. How do you feel? Now, if we were in a boat together, would you want a storm to come up? No. Would you feel comfy? No. Neither did they. Thanks, guys. Give them a hand. <laughs> most people are not expecting to come up and stand between three cones when they go to church. Thank you for your flexibility. A great windstorm arose, and already the boat was filling Everybody, even the tax collector, knows this is bad. Only the sailors know how bad. I don't know if you've ever been stranded on a road trip or had a situation where you're traveling with people where you find yourself in some kind of danger. Have you noticed immediately the resentments come up? This stupid car. <laughs> Hate this car. Never should have bought this car. Let's be honest, sometimes it's these kids. They're stupid sports. This school of ours that schedules games on the other side of the ever-loving state. I mean, aren't there basketball teams within five miles of our home? Why are we always going to Lake Elsinore? Why are we going to Boron? Why do we have to go to Sacramento to play a game that's played everywhere? All kinds of resentments arise when people are in trouble. And that's, I think, exactly what's happening here. I think Peter and John are looking at each other as soon as it starts blowing in it. It happens very, very quickly. It happens in less than a minute. They're in trouble, and the boat is already filling with water, and it's only four and a half feet tall. And instead of having five experienced crew members, it's got a motley crew of 13. And they know they're in trouble. And where's Jesus in all this? Verse 38, but he was in the stern. Those of you who know boats, where's that? That's the back. He was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. You know what that is? That is utter exhaustion. That is God himself became human flesh, hounded by family, rejected and blasphemed by religious leaders, understood by very few, believed by even fewer who has exercised spiritual strength in his ministry to preach the very word of God, be interrupted by demons, and just like that, quiet the demon, and go on to get some rest at a friend's house, at a disciple's house, only to find that the woman there is sick, he has to heal her. And with just a little bit of sustenance now, the house itself is shaking with the cries of the people outside. So what does he do? He walks out and he heals every one of them. 
And then, because he needs to hear from the Father, Mark says, I didn't show you, he gets up while it's still very, very dark, and he goes and he spends time with God in prayer. They come and they say, the people want to see you again. He says, no, let's go to the other villages, let's keep preaching. At every point, he finds people with physical disabilities in deep spiritual bondage, and everywhere he goes, spiritual power goes out of him. He is so tired that the disciples, that's how I take it, basically cradle him in the boat, and they're trying to protect him and get him to the other less inhabited side to see if they can finally have at least a little time to eat, and now they're in a terrible storm. And the sailors know it's bad news, and the tax collector, even the tax collector and the other guy who was essentially a liberation fighter who lived to assassinate these Roman oppressors, I mean, it's a motley crew in that boat if you know their stories. It's all starting to dawn on them. Maybe you've been in that situation. I'm in real trouble here. This isn't going to be a great story someday for the grandkids. This could be the end. And they care so much for Jesus. They just want to get to the other side. That's where he said they were going. They just want to get there and rest. And they keep cutting their eyes back to the back of the boat to see if at some point he's going to help and do something, and he won't. Why? Because he's, he's sleeping. And they get resentful, as people tend to do in life and death situations. And they said to him, teacher, they woke him and they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? <laughs> it's quite a question. If you've ever been in life and death situations, you understand the psychology of this story. All the politeness drains out of you, and you just say what is. Hey, <laughs> we're dying. Don't you care? What a question. Do you hear the anger in it? They're in the boat because he has bid them come. He chose them. He went one by one, probably spoke to them face to face and said, I want you to be one of my special disciples. I want you to be one of the sent ones. Come with me. And now they're in the boat. And it's not a kid's story. It's a real event. It's happening to 13 men packed into a little ancient boat built with hand tools and local lumber, and they think they're going to die. And he awoke, and watch what he does. He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, it's howling, it's blowing. Some of them have choked and coughed in the water. In the middle of all of that storm, Jesus said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. The language is that of a father speaking to his child when the child has said too much. Do you ever say this to your kids? There's a great word in English. They don't really have it in Spanish. It's very direct, but not quite as rude as shut up. You know what that word is? Maybe your grandma said it to me, to you. She said it to me plenty. It goes like this. Hush. When you hear that from your parents, like, that's right on the edge of shut up. I better be quiet. 
That's exactly what's happening here. This is a father speaking to a little child. This is a creator speaking to his creation. This is undeniably God speaking. The disciples probably didn't have the presence of mind at that point to remember some of the psalms they may have sung growing up in synagogue. But Psalm 89 says this, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? Listen, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Speaking of some sailors in need of God's help, Psalm 107 says, they reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Wow. If you want to understand the magnificence of that, we don't have a storm here, thankfully. But go out to PCH and walk out on the sand and do this. Stop. Report back and let me know how it goes. <laughs> I strongly encourage you to do it once because if you do it more than once, they might call the security and say, someone out here needs dire help. He's trying to stop the Pacific Ocean. This is Jesus. He's in charge of everything. He's in charge of the disciples. He is in perfect control of himself and obedience, loving obedience to the Father who sent him. And he wakes from his deep exhaustion of being God and acting in the very character, essence, nature, presence, person of God who has become flesh. When his frightened, resentful, angry disciples wake him, he stands up and he doesn't speak to them. He speaks to the wind and the sea, and he says, peace, be still. And just like that, there was a great calm. Just like that, it was over. You've never seen anything like that in your life because it does not occur in nature. Storms blow over and storms move on. Weather systems that are violent weaken and eventually dissipate and turn into something else. But never in your life, have you seen or will you see it all go quiet like a man through a switch? doesn't happen. It only happens when God wants it to, and on this day, God wants it to. But look at verse 40, because this is the lesson for the disciples. He said to them, now he's speaking to them, he woke up and spoke only to his creation around him in the wind and the sea. Now he's going to speak to the men he first created and then called and saved. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now sit in the boat there for just a second with those guys. What do you hear in Jesus' question? Is he pleased? What do you think? Let me give you another translation. It might give you an idea. One way to translate what he said in the first question is, why are you cowardly? Have you still no faith? I'm telling you, it's God's word, so every word counts. He asked them, why are you afraid? Now put yourself, imagine you saw 13 of us up on this little imaginary space that resembles the dimensions of that boat. Imagine their situation. They're getting heavier. They can feel themselves sinking. 
They've held on as long as they could. Finally, someone shakes him awake and asks a fairly resentful question. We're perishing. Don't you care? He wakes up, stands up, speaks to the wind and the sea. It's over just like that. And he turns to them and he asks them two questions. Why are you afraid and have you still no faith? My question to you is, why is he upset? Why does he call them fearful? Here's why. You see, when you're afraid, fear will tell you terrible, terrible lies about Jesus. That's what fear does. Whatever kind of storm you're in, whether it's literal and physical like this one or one of the many other different storms of life that can come your way, the storm will tell you that Jesus doesn't care. That's what the disciples thought. There's some resentment here. We're only out here because he called us out of the lives that we had. Peter was thinking, if I were on this sea plying my trade, I wouldn't be in the boat with these yahoos. We're not built for this. It's tough enough out here when it's just a few of us fishing who know what they're doing. What am I supposed to do with a tax collector and a guy who used to want to kill him? We're all going to die here. Fear tells you that Jesus doesn't care. And at the heart of every struggle, if you've ever had a hard time believing Jesus, taking him at his word and simply doing what he says in any area of life, that's the heart of it. That's the beginning of it at least. You're afraid that he doesn't care. You also may be afraid. Fear may also tell you that Jesus can't do anything about it. Did you notice? If you read the end of the story, you'll see that they were upset with Jesus, but they didn't particularly think that he could do anything about their situation. Look at verse 41. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, based on that question, did they think he could help in this way? You know what the question was really all about? Hey, we're about to die. You could at least wake up and be terrified with the rest of us before we do. There's so much annoyance. There's so much irritation. There's so much misunderstanding. And why is this happening? Wrapped up in the question they ask him. And that's exactly where you'll live sometimes as a disciple. Saying, Jesus, I don't know why you've brought me out here. I don't know where you are, and I certainly don't know what you're doing. Fear will tell you all kinds of terrible lies about Jesus. The worst lie, and the lie that runs all the rest, is this. That Jesus isn't for you. That he is not in your favor. That he has withdrawn blessing. That you're on your own, and you're just going to have to face it. That's really, I think, at the bottom where they ended up in the fear as they felt themselves beginning to sink toward the bottom. There are things in your life, especially if it is persistent sin, that you cannot escape, that think, you think to yourself, surely Jesus couldn't love me, forgive me, continue to cradle and shelter me. I don't think he's listening anymore. 
I don't think he cares. Fear tells you all kinds of terrible lies about Jesus, but the good news of this story is this. Fear tells you all sorts of terrible lies about Jesus, but this story means this. His sovereign saving power is for us. If you are his disciple, if you are on his side, if you have trusted and believed him, all of God in Christ is yours and is for you. That's the good news. And no religious system will ever assure you that that is true. Every kind of religious man-made thing will tell you, you work harder, you do better, and then you will draw God's favor to you. The gospel, the good news that Jesus was preaching says that God is holy and just and cannot see sin, but so impossibly beautifully loving and gracious that he sent his son to take that sin on himself. And that the disciples were safe even in the middle of that storm because Jesus had said, we're going to the other side, and he was going to guarantee their life with his own. He did his entire ministry. In fact, on the night they came to take him to the cross to die for my sins and yours, Jesus acted once more with the supernatural power of God so that his frightened disciples could escape, so that the flock could be saved and the shepherd willingly stepped forward to meet the executioners. This is why we call him Savior. And the good news is he's not only a Savior, he is a sovereign Savior in absolute control of everything. The only thing in this story that ever doubts and resists Jesus is people themselves. In this case, the fretful, fearful, resentful, argumentative disciples in the boat, they were safe the whole time because Jesus was with with them. And if you're with Jesus, you'll be safe too. So I don't know what kind of situation you're in and what kind of lies fear and pressure and trouble and maybe even illness and death and injury and disability and unemployment and wayward kids and every other kind of difficult thing that can make you fear that God is no longer with you, understand all of those fears speak about lies. But the sovereign Savior, He's not only with you, He's for you. Why then does he steer you into storms? Because there are things you learn about Jesus in the storm that the calm days can never teach you. And it's good for us to reflect and worship and consider the experiences of other disciples so that when the storms come in our lives, in spite of the circumstances and the water getting deeper all around us, we can remember who he is, what he does, how he acts in every storm, and we can remember that whatever lies fear may tell us, the sovereign Savior is for us. Let's pray together. Take a minute just between you and the Lord, please. If you're in one of those storms, you recognize maybe some lies you've believed. Could you go to him and talk to him about that? When their fear abated, I'm sure the disciples realized that they owed Jesus an apology. They were cowardly. They were faithless to shake him awake 
and rudely say, we're dying here, don't you care? But listen, I've seen my attitude and their actions so many times. And he's still for me. He's still for you if you're his disciple. So if you recognize yourself and their life, talk to him about it. Tell him you're sorry. Ask him to help you trust him better and more the next time. And if you're not Jesus' disciple, if you're not crystal clear, 100% certain that if God were to call you to the end of your life and call you to give an answer for it, that you would be 100% sure of being in heaven, remember what Jesus said, repent and believe the good news of God. Turn away from your sin and believe the good news that God is expressing in the death of Christ. Believe that his resurrection will give you eternal life. There's no ritual, there's no magic words, there's just moving trust from yourself to him. If Jesus isn't your savior, if you're not certain, I invite you to pray to him right now and tell him, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I keep trying to figure it out and save myself, but I can't. You're the Lord, you're in charge. Take charge of me, save me, and I'll follow you. And he will. He does it every day all over the world. Lord Jesus, as my fellow disciples and maybe some spiritual seekers reach out to you and we speak to you, help us remember in the storm we're in or the storm that may come that you are always and forever and only the Lord and you are for us. Thank you. Amen.